so excited to be playing our interview with Randy Bryce, or Iron Stash as he's known on Twitter. Randy Bryce is a U.S. Army veteran and a Union iron worker, and he joined the race for Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District, where he'll be challenging Paul Ryan. He talks to us about his time in the U.S. Army, being posted in Honduras, becoming skeptical of U.S. foreign policy. He also reveals to us his interesting ethnic background. Then we talk to Karina Moreno, a professor and immigration and securitization expert who teaches at LIU. She talks to us about her Jacobin article, The Politics of Solidarity, how Muslim and Latinos can work together. Subscribe to our Patreon because we have a really great bonus for you today. We play this ridiculous setup interview that CNN did with Randy Bryce where they ask him a very stupid gotcha question. We also play Randy's response to that clip and what he learned from doing media like that. And then we talk to Adam Johnson, a journalist who writes for places like FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and The Nation. And he analyzes what CNN and other networks do in order to discredit programs like Single Payer. And he gives really great tips on what to do in those situations, how to respond to gotcha questions from corporate media. So it's extremely useful. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And make sure you follow us on Twitter. The hashtag is KTHelpShow. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S-H-O-W. My handle is KTHelps, and Gabe's is Gabe underscore Pacheco. Please make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. And we'll be resuming our live shows in front of an audience at the Brooklyn Commons in September. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper. And if it's a Wednesday, you can always hear the Katie Halper Show. And you know where you hear that show? You hear it on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. And in the studio, of course, I'm with Reggie Johnson, the engineer-in-chief, the EIC. Hey, Katie. Hey, Reggie. We have a great show for you today. We are going to be talking to Karina Moreno, who's a professor who writes about immigration. She's going to be talking about the politics of solidarity and about what Muslim Americans or Muslims and Latino Americans or Latinos have to do. Uh, you know what? It's like Tina Turner asked, what's Muslims got to do, got to do with it, or what's Latinos got to do, but a second class citizenship. You're welcome, everyone. I just came up with that. That's pretty good, right? Reggie, you like that? That was like last that? minute? Yeah, I swear to God. Wow, the, you the astound me. I know, right? Wow, um, I'm bedazzled. Yeah, bedazzled, exactly. That's, bedazzled, if I can definitely. get a bedazzled out of Reggie, then my my bedazzled. life's work is done. But you guys, I didn't want to announce it because I wanted to make sure. I didn't want to get people's hopes up if we were going to be disappointing them. But you guys, guess who we have on coming on right now? You may have heard of him. His Twitter handle is Iron Stash, and his real name is Randy Bryce, and he is going to be challenging Paul Ryan. Yes. So, so, Mr. Stash, are you there? How are you doing, Katie? Good. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. You made a real splash with your campaign ad that you released mm -hmm. 
um, which is really moving. And you talk about your your kind of struggles with healthcare. You talk about your work as an iron worker. My mom is is probably the most important person in my life. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It's a very painful condition. It's like hot knives going through, and you can't talk, you can't swallow. It's terrible. I'm on 20 drugs, and if I don't take the one that costs them thousands of dollars, I don't know what would happen. The system is extremely flawed. I work every day so that me and my son have insurance. I've been an eye worker for 20 years. I work hard, and I earn every penny that I make. And I know everybody that I work with is the same way. I've spent my entire life in southeastern Wisconsin. I can see what people need. I could do so much more, and I will do so much more, taking my voice, taking our voice, and what we need to Washington, D.C. I decided to run for office because not everybody's seated at the table, and, and it's time to make a bigger table. I'm the best person to represent this district because I'm a working person. If somebody falls behind, we're so much stronger if we carry them with us. That's the way I was raised. You look out for each other. I think it's time, let's, let's trade places. Paul Ryan, you can come work the iron and I'll go to DC. We can do so much better together as a community and our future depends on it. You're basically the thing that politicians pretend to be, in my humble opinion. Can you, and I know a lot of people have uh, asked you this question, but I just want listeners to know, can you talk about what inspired you to get involved and to run? Sure. Um, I volunteered some years back, just under 10 years ago, our international, I'm a member of the Iron Workers Union, I belong to Iron Workers Local 8, our international uh, thought it was, it was very important to get more involved with political issues, and I had been going to, uh, like, local city council meetings and things like that, trying to help get projects put, because I knew that being involved on a very local level, that helped us go to work, that helped our members or brothers and sisters in my local get work. Um, so I, I volunteered, and, and it was a volunteer position to be political coordinator. Um, a few years after that, I mean, it was, it was pretty just, you know, generic, basic, things, keeping in contact with local politicians, helping endorse them, the ones that were good on labor issues. Um, and then comes, you know, 2011 and Scott Walker gets, gets, he wins the election for governor. And then I pretty much just dove into the deep end of the pool. Um, had been very involved with Act 10, uh, even though I belong to a, a private sector union in the billing trades, I knew it was just a matter of time based on what he did, his his actions that were against the uh, the county workers when he was county executive, I knew it was just a matter of time. I didn't trust man. Um, so I, I became as involved as I possibly could. And, um, I mean, I was went up to Madison to do laps around the Capitol uh, every weekend. And even during the week, I took off time from work. So, I mean, it was a big deal. It was very important. It was very moving to be a part of all of that. And then... People in the district um, called, especially, I mean, a lot of people became much more active with, like, uh, we have a Forward Kenosha, Forward Racine group, um, indivisible groups that are coming up. 
and just a lot more people wanting, you know, feeling like they want to get more actively involved with what's going on since uh, since Donald Trump won his election. So, there, were, you know, people had been calling me and leaving messages, Randy, you know, why don't you think about running? And it, I was at the point for a long time, I was like, well, it's, it's flattering that you're asking me, thanks. But I'm not saying no right now, we'll see what goes on. I had some people from the Working Families Party approach me, and they're like, we're looking for somebody to run against Paul Ryan, which would be interested. It got a little bit more serious at that point. And then on the May Day March, I marched with um, BOSIS, which is like the largest immigrant rights group in the state. And I mean, they you know they can put out tens of thousands of people for some some actions, and it's just phenomenal. So I was asked if I'd participate with that, and I said, absolutely. And... So I did that, and I ran into a state senator, Senator Larson, who um, came up to me, and he started doing the pitch about, you know, I know somebody that um, really would like to get rid of Paul Ryan. There's some people talking. We want to, you know, dying to support somebody that uh, we think can pull it off. This is going to be the, the, the time to take him out. Is it okay if I forward your information? So I, I was um, like, yeah, I guess you can. It wouldn't hurt to talk, and that's kind of... Um, where I ended up getting just—it was pretty much no looking back. No right, turning you, ju- back you at jumped that in. Point. Now, I, I right. uh, one of the people who has written about you a lot early on is Mike Elk, who writes a lot about labor. Now, I didn't yeah. know this until I read this piece. Uh, he opens his piece saying, uh, "At Payday Report, he says, despite his f- six foot two frame, the half Mexican, half Polish army veteran known as the Iron <laughs> Stash on Twitter is the epitome of a gentle giant." Does that make you an arroz con kielbasa if you're Polish-Mexican? <laughs> and you can use that um, if that helps you with any demographic. <laughs> that could really make a big difference. Well, well, um, my biological father, his dad was born in Mexico. And what happened, I mean, I don't know him. Mm-hmm. And if you walked by me on the street, I, I wouldn't recognize him. Um, okay. So my, my mom raised me as a, as a single mom for like the first five years. And then she remarried, um, and my dad, who well, I mean, I consider him my dad for all intents and purposes. Sure. I took his last name. He adopted me. Got it. So biologically, there's another guy, too, a couple other guys that I know that have the same um, biological ancestry. We call ourselves Policans. Oh, Policans. I like it. Policans. Okay. Not to be um, confused with Puerto Ricans. Right. That's another. Totally different genre. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> One well, of my best no, friends is Blacksican, and I have another best friend who's a pizza bagel. You know, we're in New York City, so that's pretty common. Um, and then wow. they're also, um, I call, this, I made this up, this name up. It's um, it's a potato famine latka that's Irish Jewish. Anyway, <laughs> all these pe- all these, all these demographics are going to definitely be supporting you. Um, Good. And, you know, um, um, we at this station are, we're very left, and... Um, Mr. Bryce, I think that our listeners would really like to call, or can, should I call you Iron? What, what, what should I call Randy. you? Okay, Randy. Randy. Okay, thanks. Randy. Um, I think our listeners would be really interested. Uh, I, I was speaking to Mike Elk about you, and he was telling me about some really fascinating background that you have in, uh, in terms of foreign policy based on your experience in Central America. Uh, mm-hmm. And right. I think our, our listeners, again, who are very to, you know, we're kind of like we make NPR look like uh, Fox News. So I think our <laughs> listeners would be very interested in hearing about that experience and what what well, changed when you did through your experience there. Well, um, I went. I mean, I I entered the army in 
the mid eighties. Um, and I, I was going to be my intent. My dad's a retired Milwaukee police officer and my intent was kind of following his footsteps. I went in to be, uh, an NP and, and that's a military, uh, not member of parliament, but military police, right, military okay. police, police correct. Sir, yeah. correct. So I did that. Um, and originally I was supposed to be stationed at white sands missile range. So they had, they pulled, you know, quite an extensive, um, security check on me and I went to go, you know, report in for duty. And I was told that I was going to, I was being diverted to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, so I then ended up going there and I was part of the rapid deployment forces with, um, like the 18th airborne Corps is there. 82nd airborne is stationed there. Um, a lot of, you know, special forces, gung ho, very gung ho base for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, and then part of my, I was deployed to Honduras mm. for a period of time. And this was when, I mean, Ronald Reagan was the president and, um, it had been just after Grenada. My unit was coming back from Grenada and, um, they had the Sandinistas were in power in Nicaragua. Um, and the Contras were just on the other side of the Nicaraguan border. They were in, in Honduras. Um, and then there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on in in El Salvador too. With um, I mean, and, and a lot of it I didn't find out until after I left. Right. Um, but what? So I mean, I spent time, I spent time there pretty much doing security for. Um, we were at a, a place called the Secret Square where um, information was taken from you know around the area along the border, and it was all processed where where I was. Um, and I got to talk to some of the people there, um, especially this one guy who would, who was responsible for turning the water on for us to take a shower. Hmm. And, um, so I, you know, talking to him, I got to find out more about what he, his thoughts were on, on living there. And I mean, it was genuinely a banana Republic. And yeah. I, I just, I felt really horrible. Like I wanted to take this guy, you know, sneak him on a plane with us coming back up. Um, cause that was, I mean, his journey he got basically nothing for just spending all day there, turning on the water for a couple hours in the middle of the day and then going home. They had, I mean, nothing. And then like we'd go into town too. And there were groups of kids that would come up, like try to shine your shoes for, um, you know, a, a dollar or something, basically almost nothing just so they could get something to eat. These are, you know, street kids. Um, so I, I ended up, I picked um, one who he just had, like really large ears and um he was you know the other kids kind of picked mm. on him and and pushed him away and his name was george so i i saw him off to the side and i was like hey you you know and so i i got to meet george um and every time i went into town i i looked for george and he was probably right now probably about a couple years older than my son is now i guess like around 11 mm. 12 um so i mean we took him out me and the guy was on on guard duty with and i mean we, we did as good as, as we could you know to to make his existence um more bearable and and to kind of put up you know like we're from the united states and and not everybody is is bad and um we just want to we're here to help people out um and that's why you know i went down there and i i fully felt that that's what our mission was down there um and then after after going back to the states um, after being down there, it was just, um, you know, I, I wasn't 
I wasn't gung ho, and I got to the point where I was really, um, I wanted to, to finish my enlistment, and I, I wasn't planning on on signing, you know, signing up for another term. Um, but I was looking forward to getting back to civilian life, and so I did. And um, I, when I got out, one of the first jobs I had was working with homeless veterans, hmm. and it was through it was a federal grant called the Homeless Veterans Reintegration Project. Um, so what we did at that time, uh, the, the homeless population, 60% of the homeless population was made up of veterans. Wow. And that was just, I mean, when I heard that number and I was asked about the job, I'm like, yeah. And I, I mean, I took it, I didn't ask what it got, what it paid or, and it, it turned out to be, you know, the pay was very minimal. Um, but still it was just the job that I, I, you know, one of those jobs you live for and you feel you have a, a sense of purpose. And the goal of that project was to take all the veterans we could identify in the city of Milwaukee and um, get them involved in services that were specific, like through the VA, um, any kind of veterans projects that we could. And that way it would free up money and and resources for the rest of the homeless population. Mm. And, um, you know, that that ran its course for a couple of years. Um, Some good things came out as a result, like there's a, down in Racine now, there's a apartment complex that's named after one of the guys that um, ran the project. Um, but but part of that, doing that and talking to the veterans was we ran into one guy who was um, he's like I'm a, I'm a an atomic soldier. And I was like, well, what's that? And he pulled up his shirt and it looked like somebody poured acid mm. all over his back. And I was like, my God, what happened to you? And he was like, I was at the I was one of the guys that was at the test site. When they, they tested a nuclear bomb. Um, and I mean, I, it was like, what do you say to somebody like that? I was, you know, he's, he's homeless. How are we going to get proof that this happened to the guy? There was no other explanation for what I saw. I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, but uh, so it was trying to, you know, contact the VA and like, look, there's this guy. He says this happened to him. And then they were like, well, we need some kind of documentation. I'm like, this guy's homeless. What? What can I, you know, and it was, it was hard enough then just trying to find, you know, get them hooked up with a job or something. Because if you're homeless, what do you put down? Even if you get them, take them, somebody to fill out a job application for where they live. We, we eventually got the shelters to allow us to use their address as like a home address. And, you know, they would relay messages. Um, but the, the homeless population was just, you couldn't count, you couldn't find them. So eventually I, I lost track of this man um, without being able to help him. And it's, you know, to this day I'm wondering what whatever became of him. And and that really has me um, very upset when I see something going on as far as, you know, like cuts to veterans. Um, because I, I honestly feel that veterans have no use to, to a particular um, group of people in the country unless we're you know we're catching bullets for them because right. once we get back they don't want to and it's not just physical well-being but especially mental well-being i mean yeah how, how do you think anybody... that republicans how is it that republicans have managed to convince veteran veterans and also workers to support them when their entire and again i'm not i don't want to pretend that the democrats are great on this but mm-hmm. they're certainly 
don't focus as much as the Republicans do on gutting programs for the homeless or for veterans. And as someone who's both, uh, sorry, not homeless, <laughs> for workers and homeless people and veterans, but as someone who's both a veteran and a worker, um, how do you think, what insights do you have into how Republicans have managed to attract these people? How someone like Paul Ryan wins in Wisconsin, how someone like Scott Walker wins in Wisconsin, and what is that insight, how does that shape how you're going to move forward to try to win this election? Well, the thing is, is, is when once upon a time when Paul Ryan did have public town halls in the district, he sounded centuries ago, and, right? Pardon me. Centuries ago, back in the 15th century. Right. Yeah. It, it's been like 630 some days. Right. I think it's been. Um, but when he did show up, he would talk. Um, he sounded like a Democrat. You know, promising older people he's going to protect Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, even even recently when they were um, going through through the House to repeal Obamacare, there were commercials being played, you know, and, and I'm not saying they were attached to his campaign specifically, but some other group that was very supportive of him were playing these commercials that were, you know, call Paul Ryan, thank him for protecting your ability to be covered, you know, to not to get penalized for a pre-existing condition. And I'm look I'm looking at the TV and I'm like, holy cow, these guys are they're just so brazen now. They're just outright lying. And um, the thing is, is that he people are starting to understand what he's doing with like the groups that that I mentioned before that have sprung up uh, after the recent election in November. Um, people are becoming more and more aware. And I honestly think that that's part of the reason why he's not here now is because he understands people are upset. And I mean, if you just look around the country where Republicans did go back that voted to take away health care, um, just the kind of response that they got. So, I mean, I don't really blame him, but, you know, at the same time, like for me, if I don't show up on a, on a job site and weld what needs to get welded or, or put some iron together, if I don't do that, if I don't show up, they're going to replace me with somebody who will do it. Right. Um, so it's he's not he's doing stuff he's taking stuff away from us you know and it's not it's not lost it's not misplaced he's actively taking this trying to take this away from us our ability to see a doctor um, and and I'm really it, it, it's really upsetting especially um, looking at my mom what that'll mean for you know people like my mom who depends on her medication not just to be healthy. But that's her independence. That's her ability to go to the grocery store on her own. That's her ability to go visit my dad, who has Alzheimer's, um, and assisted living. Without her medication, she wouldn't be able to do that. So I take what he's doing very personal. And I know I'm not the only one. And especially since we launched our campaign, we get, you know, like postcards and letters from from people. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm 85 years old, retired on fixed income. And, and you know, bless you for, for running against Paul Ryan. I don't have a lot, but here's, here's $5. And I'll be like a $5 bill. And, you know, offers of prayers. And, and I, I'm like, it, I mean, it, it really hits me hard when I, when I read letters like that. Um, just knowing that the story that was told in that video, it's not, it's not just me. And it's, you know, I, when people ask, how, how was it so successful? How did it, what, what made it blow up? And I'm like, it's just 
a very common message. It's a basic message. I didn't invent the Internet, and it's not a, uh, an ad or something telling people, look at me, I, I did this for all of you. It's just telling a story about a working guy who is, you know, how, how stuff's affecting him, and it's um, it's personal, and and. It's obviously been very personal for other people, too. Right. Randy, Bryce, thank you so much for joining us, Iron Stash, on Twitter. And where can people um, find you online so they can find out more about your campaign? www.randybryceforcongress.com. And um, I'm also on Facebook under Randy Bryce or Iron Stash. And, you know, and I appreciate you reaching out. I just happened to see that you were looking for somebody how to get a hold of me. And I just... I just want to let everybody know, any you know, um, that working people need to run to represent ourselves. Yes. So thank you for the invitation. Thank I really you. appreciate and it. And say hi to your family, who we know through your ads. I will. Okay. I Thanks will. so much. I will. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks, you too. Wow, that was great. That was great. I'm very, I'm quelling a little bit. That was Randy Bryce, Iron Stash, uh, on Twitter. We're going to transition to our guest who's in studio, and her name is Karina Moreno. She's been on the show before. She's a very uh, accomplished and smart lady. She's a professor. She's a writer. She is going to be talking about uh, this great article she had in Jacobin called The Politics of Solidarity. So, Karina, welcome. Hi, how are you? And this is a great piece that you wrote. And what's cool about this piece is that, you know, I have a lot of guests on who are great. They have great politics. They write a lot of think pieces. I do that myself. But you're actually someone who does original research. And so what's really cool about this piece is you get to talk about your own research, interviewing Latinos in Arizona. Latinos in Arizona and in New York. So can you talk to us a little bit about what's the thesis of your piece and also about what went into it in terms of research? So I, I was part of this um, big trans transatlantic comparative uh, research project where we were looking at securitization, which basically means how after 9-11 immigration is framed by political elites as a security threat. So we have been working on this uh, with a grant from Sciences Po and Sorbonne University for years under the Obama administration, looking at data since way before Trump even announced he was running for president. When I was studying security, one of the biggest questions was why is there this complete lack of awareness between Muslims and Latinos that they're both being targeted in very similar ways and they're both being disproportionately burdened by the state and framed as security threats in, in a very unfair way that is has no merit at all. I feel awful saying this, right? But one of the mm. good things about the Trump presidency is that it it finally brought sort of to the forefront and, and made the connection clear. So before before Trump, there was sort of no no awareness between the two groups. As soon as Trump took office, though, the hashtag no ban, no wall, no raids, it actually made me really happy because I, I thought finally this sort of connection uh, can, can be made. And we began to see Latinos and Muslims do um, a host of diff uh, different events together, creating that sort of coalition and that solidarity can can really be a huge opportunity for the left. And you write, to play devil's advocate, although it's not really playing devil's advocate because this is your, in your own piece, uh, Jacobin, you say that data shows that Muslim immigrants are, quote-unquote, highly assimilated, and quote, compared to other immigrant groups. They complete their naturalization process and acquire citizenship more quickly. For the most part, Muslim immigrants also have socioeconomic status and educational levels comparable to native-born Americans. 
Latinos are a different story. Sociodemographic data shows that this group consistently lags behind the general population in both socioeconomic status and educational level. Only about 15% of Latinos complete a college education, and the wealth of white households is about 11 times that of a Hispanic household. Latino immigrants acquire citizenship in smaller numbers and at a slower rate than other immigrants. Okay, so my question is, what accounts for these, these differences? And also, what are the similarities despite those differences? Even though the immigrant experience can be something that they have in common, it's a completely different experience. Muslims, they, they're generally more educated, more affluent. So they come here more educated, more affluent, you're saying? Yes, and and they naturalize immediately as soon as they're eligible for it. Um, so when you look at, you compare them um, with, with native-born uh, Americans, they're actually even better off sociodemographically. So that was something really interesting. I mean, part of the reason why I think there was n this lack of awareness between Muslims and Latinos that they were sort of under the same umbrella uh, of of securitization was because they are demographically so different. Latinos tend to be at the bottom in terms of education, in terms of income, sort of the bottom tier of, of working people. So, and we still lag, lag behind and are the, also at the bottom uh, in terms of getting an education, which is not the case for Muslims. So those are the real big differences. The similarities though, the similarities that now are really glaring under the Trump administration is that we're both sort of screwed in very similar ways in terms of That's being the academic framed. term, right? <laughs> in, in terms of being framed as this sort of threat to national security. That's one similarity. And the other one is that we both have low social capital and political capital. You know, it's more of a puzzle when you look at Muslims because right. Because they're more affluent and more educated, they should have higher social capital, higher political capital, but they don't because they are stigmatized um, since 9-11. Sometimes people look at things like, oh, look, uh, Latinos are less uh, successful. Muslims are more successful. Therefore, that means there's something culturally wrong with Latinos or they have this inherent inability to be successful. What is your, how would you respond to that? When I moved to the United States, I moved to Texas, and I graduated with my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, and I was working at the University of Texas A&M International in Laredo, and I was in charge of this migrant program. So I was in charge of about 40 students who, uh, who were migrants. So they basically finished the school year a month early so that they could go work with their families on the farms, and then they would start the school year um, a month late because then that's when their families would be coming back uh, from their agricultural work. I can say that in in my experience, it's been that when <laughs> when you're just it's sort of like being trapped in, at the bottom of 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 the labor pool, right? You're right. sort of just getting by, right? And um, also, you don't have to. I mean, when you're coming from a, a Muslim country, right? You have to take a flight. You can't like cross you can't walk right so again there's going to be a statistical right and i think i mean they have a better education they have a higher education expectation than than yeah. us right so i mean when i was working in this program we basically tried to set up this first year program to help as much as possible and help them help these students get through the first year and so many of them would get phone calls from their parents asking them to come home because mm. they needed help to pay the bills so right. this is sort of the lagging effect from generation to generation right. that they're they are not completing a college education they're sort of staying in this in the same ring of labor in the service industry um 
and and that's why. Right. And again, I just think something will happen, right? When you have when there's a certain financial investment required to go from one country to another, you're going to have a different population, right? Like coming over. I know it sounds weird because the left doesn't like. I, I don't mean this in a socio biological way. I just literally mean like the economics that are required to go from one country to another. And I'm not saying like all people who flee who come from Muslim countries are like bougie rich people, but there's some kind of capital required. Yes. Um, you know, no one really. What, what's weird about Trump is that I remember when he said, "Black people, what do you have to lose?" And I remember being like, "Wow, yeah, he's good." I'm sorry, but that's like a good. Some people were like, "I'm sure, like you're so full of it because you're racist. You wanted to." He does all this uh, dog whistling, right? All his stuff with the Central Park Five. These guys who had their confessions forced out of them, and then they were like uh, compensated by the city because they were they had were deprived of due process uh and he was really upset about that he had taken out an ad in the daily news uh at the time in the 80s calling for a reinstatement of the death penalty like people get that this was race baiting right this is dog whistling but unlike mexicans and muslims when it came to black people when it came to lgbtq he didn't explicitly uh, attack them the way he did with Mexicans and Muslims, right? Mexicans mm -hmm. were rapists and Muslims were terrorists. Mm -hmm. So that, in a way, was a great unifying thing that happened to them, right? As opposed to black people and LGBTQ people. LGBTQ people he praised. So th this is where I talk about in the Jac Jacobin piece. This is an opportunity for the Democrats, right? So we have a space, hopefully, for actual left politics, because you have groups of people who have traditionally not been active politically, who have not been um, active participants in terms of voting and any sort of like political process. So you have these groups building a political consciousness right now under Trump. And it's going to be, you know, it's up in the air if the Democrats actually take advantage of that and actually build uh, coalitions that bring these people in. Um, but in the long run, um, it's gonna, it, I, I can't say enough, it will end up hurting the left if the Democrats don't have something to offer Mexicans and Muslims, for example, right? I'm, and I'm not just limiting the conversation to them, but I'm, I'm saying groups that traditionally don't participate mm. and are becoming more aware of, of these political things under Trump, it will end up hurting the left so much more in the long term if they don't bring them in um, as voters for, for the left. Which means that if history is any indication, they will not do that, right? Because the left is great. The non-left left, the liberal left is great at uh, doing the antithesis of what they should be doing. So you, you have these groups building political consciousness. If the left does not do something to bring them in, uh, what's going to happen is these groups will just be frustrated, withdraw, and will leave like the whole political sphere um, who knows for how long. And mm -hmm. that's why I'm saying long term it will end up hurting left politics much more because they will not come back. Um, so much of my research has been on the sort of disillusionment that exists already uh, within Latinos and the Democratic Party. So, um, you know, ev even the Obama administration, they... We, we look at the sort of piecemeal uh, executive orders that he passed, and they were all so, sort of made on the assumption that Hillary would win the election, right, and that they would continue. But now we have this DACA program, Deferred Action for Child Arrivals. So we essentially have all the dreamers up in the air in, in limbo um, and essentially in, in applying for that pro two-year protection under Obama, now 
the Trump administration has all of their information, and that's just the the largest betrayal right. um, that you can imagine. And so, like I said, unless the Democrats really do something here in terms of legalizing um, people who have been here, people who are here undocumented, who um, over half of them, maybe I think about like 80% of them have been here for over a decade, and um, definitely... Uh, 80% of them are in mixed status families, meaning the you know one of the parents has no papers, but the rest of the family is legal. So um, unless they really do something in terms of immigration, in terms of the security state, the, the surveillance state of, of Muslims, then these groups will sort of just withdraw and alienate and, and not participate. Right. Politically. It reminds me of we did a uh, listeners should make sure they listen to last week's episode. We talked to Thomas Frank and he talked about how there's this assumption on the part of the Democrats that uh, people of color and working class of all colors uh, had no place else to go. And that really backfired. Right. And you say, Karina, something really uh, controversial. We're going to have to do an, a bonus interview with you <laughs> because we barely got to scratch the surface. But you write in your piece, perhaps this is because there were few reforms um, offered by Barack Obama's administration were just enough to deter mass political mobilization. So we're going to talk about that with you another time. Some, we're going to release it this week. Uh, people can go to Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud to find us. It's the Katie Halper Show on Facebook. Uh, find us on SoundCloud, iTunes. Make sure you rate and review us on iTunes. And uh, we're going to talk to you about that and also the information that's now accessible. Uh, Karina Moreno, thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Kari in Brooklyn, K-A-R-Y in Brooklyn. Great. And um, thank you so much again, uh, Randy Bryce, Iron Stash on Twitter on, and on Facebook, who's going to be challenging uh, Paul Ryan. Don't forget to join our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show, because then you will be able to hear really great bonus content in which Randy Bryce responds to the CNN gotcha interview that he didn't have enough time to respond to on television because they, of course, ambush you with ridiculous questions. As if that's not good enough, Adam Johnson, extremely smart, knowledgeable, media critic, journalist, offers tips on what to do when you're presented with questions like those. So this is extremely useful and extremely insightful. 